Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, Lit Up listeners. Like all of you, we're grateful for all the local independent bookstores that bring us incredible books, support local authors, and host fantastic events. This week's episode is brought to you by the Elliott Bay Book Company, located in the heart of Seattle's Capitol Hill neighborhood. Elliott Bay is a full-service bookstore, and they offer one of the region's best selections of new books with over 150 titles. In addition, Elliott Bay presents an unparalleled schedule of author readings and events throughout the year. We are so excited to have Kate from Elliott Bay tell us about a book series that lights her up. Take it away, Kate. Hi, I'm Kate and I'm a bookseller at Elliott Bay Book Company in Seattle, Washington. This year we are celebrating our 50th anniversary. Woohoo! A book trilogy that I've recently become obsessed with has been the Scholarman series by Naomi Novik. This series includes A Deadly Education, The Last Graduate, and the newly released The Golden Enclaves. This riveting and fantastic story checks all of the fantasy boxes, full of complicated characters, terrifying bloodthirsty monsters, and a satisfying dash of teenage drama and romance. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. My guest today is one of my favorite writers. I'm still just buzzing that I get to talk to her. Her work is playful, surprising, and always fascinating. It's Susan Orlean. She has been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 1992, and she's the author of seven books, including On Animals, which we'll discuss at length in this conversation, The Library Book, Rin Tin Tin, and The Orchid Thief, which was made into the Academy Award-winning film Adaptation. Now, this conversation will give you a sense of Susan and her work. We dart all over the place covering topics like the Taxidermy World Championships and the people she met there. Now, I had all these plans for this conversation, the notes, all these questions for Susan, who I've loved for so long. But with Susan Orlean, you have to let her curiosity dictate where the story will lead. I hope you love this conversation. I'm so thrilled I get to have Susan Orlean on Lit Up. Welcome, Susan. I'm thrilled to be with you. This is a treat for me. Well, that's very, very generous of you to say. So I was given your book on animals recently by my fiancé because he knows I'm an animal lover, but we don't have an animal in our life at the moment. So I resonated you know, very much with some of those early essays where you were living in New York and trying to work out how to get animals back in your life. Can you start telling us about what it was like growing up, how you did, and then making that transition 
It's a very epic story. Um, well, I had a modestly animal-filled childhood in the sense that when I was very young, I had a mouse, a pet mouse, but I wanted a dog, I wanted a cat, I wanted a lot of animals. My mother was afraid of dogs. So this was a huge impediment to the idea of us getting a dog. And I, I lived in a suburb, lots of people had dogs. When I was young, I to sort of assuage my urge for dogs, I would regularly go around to our neighbors and ask if they needed someone to walk their dog. I just wanted to be around dogs. I finally, I think I was about 13 when we managed to persuade my mother to let us get a dog. And it was a big thing for her to overcome her fear. Of course, it was a huge thrill. And from that point on, I really hardly ever spent any time without a dog. I mean, that was the beginning of an almost unbroken stretch of dog coexistence <laughs> from that point on. When I moved to New York City, I kind of imagined that I did have a dog at the time, but I imagined that I was entering a period of life where I was going to be really divorced from the animal world. You know, it's New York City. You don't picture yourself being surrounded by animals. And of course, I was surprised almost immediately because I think pet ownership in New York City is astronomical. Everybody has dogs. And you don't even know how many people have cats because you never see them. I mean, it's sort of a pushback against the denatured experience of living in New York City, that people really want animals. And I, I had my dog and discovered that there was a whole life of living in New York City and going to the parks regularly and seeing really scores of people out walking their dogs, socializing. It was a really big part of my life. Around that time, after I met my husband, we, in a circuitous route, ended up living upstate in the Hudson Valley. We had 55 acres. So we were really, it was our kind of <laughs> our Green Acres experience, you know, city people suddenly living surrounded by land and farms and, you know, animals were a very much part of the economy. There were cattle farms and next to us was a thoroughbred horse breeding farm. To me, it was like getting a job in a candy shop. I thought, here I am. You know, this is the pinnacle of the experience of living with animals. Where do I even begin? And it really was a kind of funny moment of sorting out my fantasies about I'm just going to have a million animals, and then the reality of thinking, wow, I'm going to take on the husbandry of these creatures. I don't necessarily know how to do that. I had had 
dogs. I never had livestock, but I wanted livestock. God knows why. I mean, it was just this urge that I couldn't put my finger on. I just love the idea of having those animals with which we've developed a a kind of harmony, but they're not pets, nor are they wild. They are in this liminal space in their relationship to people. But what was that going to be? I then saw a documentary about urban chicken farming, and I was almost instantaneously possessed with the idea of getting chickens. And so that was how I sort of entered the world of livestock and became a passionate zealot for chicken ownership, which then radiated from there. Well, I'm so interested in this transition from the city to the country as well. I'm fighting every urge not to just go somewhere full-time and be with the animals. And maybe that happens at this certain time in life or the world feels like a place I just want to retreat to and, you know, have some dogs. But that also might be the fantasy version of what you were also alluding to. Now you live in Los Angeles and in 2011 you raised your son when you were living in the countryside. What was that experience like retreating from the city and why was it so important to make that decision then? You know, we had had this property in the Hudson Valley and we had always imagined it as our weekend getaway. And when you're a weekender, you cannot have animals like chickens and so forth. It really is something that requires being attendant and available all the time. My son was born, and at that point, we actually were living in Boston, but again, in a very urban part of Boston, in fact, downtown in a loft. Our plan had been to move back to New York City, but it was a decision where the call of being in this beautiful space with so much land around us and the pace of living in the country just was irresistible. And yes, some of it is fantasy. The fact is, if I made my full-time living as a farmer, I can assure you it's a very hard life. So... I want to just put in that kind of caution that I'm not pretending that we were living the life, the agrarian life. We were, I was writing a book. My husband was writing a book. You know, we were hobbyists. Being a farmer is a very hard job. Being a hobbyist, a hobby farmer is a wonderful wish fulfillment. But as far as a fantasy It was exactly as I imagined. The rhythms of life among animals is a soothing, marvelous one. And it really did fulfill that urge that I had. And I loved even the mundane tasks of taking care of the animals. And I ended up having chickens, ducks, geese, guinea fowl, turkeys 
I love taking care of them. And maybe some of that was that being a writer is such an inexact pursuit. You never can say, this is perfect, this is done, this is absolutely as it should be. Whereas taking care of animals, the animals need to be fed. I'm going to collect the eggs and let them out for a stroll. I mean, it's such a specific act. It's not intellectual, which is also sort of a relief. Everyone's alive that night. Yes. And, you know, you also learn that there's a lot of heartbreak because animals get killed, they get sick, um, but there is a wonderful balance in your life if you're doing mm -hmm. work that has so much emotional kind of imprecision. And to contrast that with doing something that you can feel very fulfilled and know you've done it right. How long did it take before David Remnick would let you write about your experience with animals for The New Yorker? <laughs> did it take a lot of cajoling or was he encouraging of that? Well, it's funny. He is not an animal person at all. He's not hostile to animals, no. but he, he just is not somebody. He didn't grow up with animals. He doesn't have a particular sort of resonance with animals. And so it's been this very funny part of our relationship because I'm always coming to him saying, here's a great story about an animal. And to his credit, as a great editor, he can override his own resistance to a subject. When I came to him and said, I'm seeing this bubbling up of interest in urban chicken farming, he responded right away and, and said, you know, you really should write about it through your experience, which surprised me since that's not my usual approach to stories. I tend to come at it as a reporter. And he was the one who said, you need to address this through your own crazy desire to have chickens. Like, why would someone want chickens? And the fact is that that was fascinating. And the examination of my own desire turned out to be very revealing about the sociological implications, why this was happening. Well, I think that we're all looking for a way to reconnect, like you mentioned in the book, with a past, but with that agrarian past and the rhythms that ground us. So growing up in Australia, we had quite an unusual situation where at my dad's house, we had a sheep. We mm. had two German shepherds who had to be kept away from the sheep because the German shepherds, once they got that taste of blood. So we had kind of a tennis court that separated them with the dogs always up on the fence, you know, desperately trying to get at this poor lone sheep. 
we had a turtle, we had geese for a while, we had the rabbits that multiplied and probably got out into the local park as a you know complete pest. We had all these birds. It was such an imaginative and fabulous place to be connected to all these animals. And then I would go to my mum's house where no animals, no dog. So it was this back and forth. So I'm sure you know, in the way that you found that kernel in yourself of the why, there's some reconnecting to such a happy place. I wanted to ask you about your book, Rintin Tin, as it relates to German shepherds, you know, the breed I love. How did you come across that story? And then that moment as a reporter where you go, this isn't just a feature, it's a book. I was working on a piece about animals in film. I was spending time with the film and television unit of American Humane Society, and they are the people who oversee the welfare of animals on movie sets. You know, as one does, I just sort of Googled animals in Hollywood, and the first thing that popped up was Rin Tin Tin. Now, I probably hadn't even heard that name since I was a really little kid. Hmm. And it was my Proustian Madeline. I just, it was, it threw me into this memory pool because my grandfather had a Rintintin figurine that he kept on his desk and he wouldn't let us touch it. It was very precious to him. It was plastic, mm. you know, so it wasn't yeah. some valuable, f- fragile piece of porcelain. And while I was a little too young to watch the television show, I was aware of Rin Tin Tin and I longed for a German Shepherd as a kid. And it was out of the question because of my mom being afraid of dogs. Yeah. Now, my understanding was that he was a television character. There was a television show. He was a character in it. And what this little Google listing said was Rin Tin Tin was a dog born in 1918 who had been found on a battlefield in World War I by an American soldier. And the top of my head lifted off, and I just said, wait a minute, this is surreal. I mean, this this character was actually a real dog. It was, it was a very disorienting almost to think, it would be like finding out that Superman was real. So I instantly began gobbling up anything I could and the story immediately riveted me that this was a puppy found on a battlefield in World War I, brought back to the U.S., who became a star in silent film, which is a whole part of his history that I I didn't even know existed. As far as I knew, he was a character in a television show that began in the late 1950s. I immediately knew that it needed to be a book. And interestingly, it was it was when I finally finished the book 
and the New Yorker wanted to run an excerpt, it was tricky to find an excerpt because it's such a braided story. It's so interwoven with the history of Hollywood, with the history of these dogs, in a way that was challenging to whittle down to one 4,000-word chunk. It was, I have to say, only a few times in my life where I've had a reaction where I said, this is a book, and that was one of them. And then I have to ask, what were the others? Have you ever had that feeling and the book hasn't ended up eventuating, or is it pretty clear to you your instincts are honed? My instincts are pretty good. I think because I'm quite critical of that feeling and I think, hmm, really, is this, is there enough? You know, making the decision to commit to a book is an enormous leap. The only book that I've ever begun working on that I gave up on was not because I lost faith in the book. It was because I found that somebody else was working on a book that was too similar. And I regret the decision, to be honest, because I was really excited about the book and I should have stuck with it and just disregarded the fact that someone else was working on it. But that's not a comfortable feeling for a writer to have somebody that is kind of working in parallel with you on a subject. I'm often reading proposals or manuscripts and trying to find books to publish. And what I keep coming across is that sometimes the stakes aren't high enough. There's a great story, but the stakes aren't there. In The Orchid Thief, I mean, what a wild story, but the stakes were there. Can you talk a little bit about how those layers and how that scaffolding evolves? That is very often the case that you confront turn in the story that might even make it seem unmanageable. But let me back up and say that I think that the highest stake in a book has to be the writer's abiding passion to answer some question. Mm. Those are the highest stakes. If you as a writer, at least in the kinds of books that I respond to, if you don't bring to that your own quest, no matter how high the stakes are, unless you're writing literally just a true crime book, so-and-so got murdered, here's the story of the murder, and those are not, I think, even those books don't resonate unless there's some deeper component on the writer's part. The bigger story is always what's, what's sort of lifted by the writer's own stakes in the story. Yeah. Well, something I find so interesting about your work, but I also feel that David Remnick wouldn't let you write any other way, but it's the lack of judgment that comes with all your work, really. You know, you're so funny about your point of view or the way you might see something, but there's never any judgment of the people involved in your pieces. That essay about the 
going to the world championships for taxidermy. Can we start there and how it felt as an animal lover to go and just hear and absorb those stories? Well, to kind of respond to the issue of judgment, I would never claim that I'm not opinionated, that I don't have judgments in my life. But when I am writing, I feel this absence of that just lifts off of me. I think because the value that I place on curiosity so overrides my own personal judgment and my drive to say to the reader, look at this thing that you might feel uncomfortable with. And first of all, maybe you've never really looked at it deeply. Moreover, you may not understand at all why someone else might put value on it, why you find it distasteful or uncomfortable or puzzling, whatever it is. I think that I've written a lot of stories about things that I find very uncomfortable. I mean, it's a little like going into the belly of the beast. I don't really like writing about people who are just like me. I'd rather push myself and Mm -hmm. say, can you look at this openly and see what what works in this practice for other people? With taxidermy, honestly, I thought taxidermy was a dying art form, that there were a handful of people in the United States that even did it. No, I had no idea. I certainly had no idea that so many people did it, that it is sort of growing as a practice as opposed to shrinking, that people competed to do the most beautiful mount, and that these people are animal lovers. That's a really interesting kind of conundrum. So part of me thinks, look, who am I to judge? I I love animals, but I also eat animals. These people love animals, and they, they see their work as a sort of tribute to how beautiful these animals are, how fascinating they are. Now, the idea that you're mounting a wolf that someone shot, you know, to me it's just very disturbing. I think, wouldn't it be nicer to see the wolf out running through the mountains. And frankly, I'm not an op-ed writer. If I want to write a story about why I don't agree with hunting wolves, that's an op-ed piece. (laughs) If I want to say to people, I'm an explorer, I want to understand the world. I want to know why someone loves doing what they do. I want to know what matters to people and what makes them feel that they've found their place in the world. Because to me, that's always the question. What is it that we do to make ourselves feel at home in the world? The passion that these taxidermists bring to their work is something I could relate to completely. 
they want to make a bear look as alive as possible, even though it's dead. I want to make my story as alive as possible, even though it's just words on a page. We're not so different. It also felt that for a lot of people that it creates a human community through that love of animals. And we, like you said, all those New York City people walking their dogs and talking to people on their way. I agree a hundred percent. I feel like, and I really first encountered this in my very first book, Saturday Night, but more more explicitly when I was working on The Orchid Thief. And I realized that ultimately this was about not being lonely. And someone said to me memorably, wherever I am in the world, all I have to do is find other orchid people. Mm -hmm. And we have so much to talk about. What a wonderful thing. I mean, there was a community that was palpable, that you could be anywhere. You could be in Paris, you could be in Brazil, anywhere you were in the world, you could relate to the other orchid people there. And, you know, that is the most basic human need is to find your home in the world. And when I say home, I don't mean a physical place as much as a community. To be able to know that you're never alone. All you have to do is find the other people who collect pocket watches or whatever it is that you've decided to make your life about. These taxidermists were at this convention and it was just the happiest group of people who were all buzzing about the same thing and talking about the particulars of what kind of glue they use and what kind of nails they use. And that's when we feel connected. Hmm. I feel like we could talk on for hours, but I want to ask one of my last questions. What lights you up? Oh boy, so many things. Reading something great, thinking of an idea of something I want to write about. I mean, that really does still thrill me when my dogs behave well, when my son comments on my Instagram. Oh, I love that. <laughs> you know, I'm happy to say that even though I've been writing for a long time, I still get enormous pleasure out of either stumbling on an idea where I think, oh, that's such a great story, or writing a, a piece and looking at it and thinking, boy, that, I kind of nailed it. I'm doing this column of obituaries for The New Yorker, and my obituary today is about a deer. I encourage you to take a look at it, and it was one where the minute I heard about this deer, I thought, oh, that's a great obituary idea. And I had a wonderful time writing it. And it just made me so happy. I still get so much pleasure feeling like I learned something and I was able to say to readers, oh, you've got to learn this thing too. It's, it's so cool. You're going to enjoy it. I think that's when I get the biggest thrill. 
Well, it's so wonderful to hear that because it that interest and that specificity all comes out in your writing so, so much. And I just feel so lucky to have had this conversation with you. We didn't get to Free Willy. We didn't get to the Tigers, the military mules. I mean, there are just so many interesting stories in the book that you know, our listeners can read for themselves. But thank you for being so generous with your stories. Well, anytime I'd be happy to do volume two with you. It's just really a pleasure. And I hope you get your animals. Thank you. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar 23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Olivia Allmeyer is the marketing and editorial consultant. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Andre Rodofsky wrote the theme music. See you in two weeks. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.